let it flow through me. Brother, would you please put up on the screen John chapter 7, verse 37. I want to ask you a question. If we took a cup of water and submersed it in a river, put it under the river, no part of that cup is outside of the river, in the air. It's only in the river. Would any of that cup be dry? <laughs> Come on, it's common sense, right? If we put a hole in that cup and just basically made a tube and put it in the river and did the exact same thing, would that, would that tube ever stop having a flow going through it? No, especially if that river keeps going, right? Listen to what the scriptures say, starting in verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers. Somebody say rivers. Thank you. Rivers of living water will flow from within them. Not just one river, multiple rivers. Come on, somebody. This is amazing. Multiple rivers. And I kind of think of this like the Mississippi, where every river comes into the Mississippi River. So it's technically the flow of many rivers. Because I believe it's one Holy Spirit, but there's different, the Bible says, seven spirits or manifestations that come from that spirit. The spirit of knowledge and wisdom, and they re they're represented in the menorah. I could get really deep right here. And I think that those, those candle lights represent the rivers, and it's one Holy Spirit, but multiple rivers shall flow from within you. So every single person here today should be able to say that. Now let's go to Psalm chapter 23 because it's a fulfillment of what David prophesied in that famous psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still or quiet waters. He does what? He refreshes my soul. He refreshes my soul. Could you ever go thirsty if you lived by rivers of clean water? No, you could never go thirsty. You would literally never go thirsty. You could never go dry if you were submersed in a river. You could never not have a flow going through you if you are in that river. And so when we're singing this song, if we could go back to the lyrics, please, we are not saying something that we're just hoping to be true, like, I hope one day that Jesus satisfies me like this. I hope one day he flows through me like this. That's not what we're saying as Christians. We are proclaiming the truth that he satisfies us now. He is flowing through us now. I am never empty. If we could put that up, please. I am never empty and I am never dry. Thank you. Let it flow through me. Now, what we mean by the it there is the rivers. The river there is an it, but it's the person who brings the rivers. Can I hear an amen? So let's just sing it again, starting off as a prayer. And let's just open up our hearts and let God flow through us today. Do what he said he would do. Would you do that with me? Thank you, Jesus, for your rivers today. I'm never dry. When you're with me, God, it would be impossible you restore my soul. You satisfy. Let it flow through me. Let those rivers come through us today. Let's sing it again. And then we're going to turn towards prayer. Yes.
Okay, and then now what I want you to do is I want you to turn towards prayer. Anything in your life that you feel needs to be submerged in that river right now. A lot of you going through situations with your family, friends, loved ones, problems, sicknesses, finances. Come on, just put it in the river right now. Lord, I put my fears in the river. Flow through me, God. Flow through the situation. God, I put everything I'm going through in this relationship, God, in the river right now. Flow over this relationship. Flow through this relationship. All my finances, my job, my education, I put in the river. I submerse it in the river. It's yours. I'm yours, God. Flow through me. Flow through my job. Flow through my education. Satisfy me today. Every longing of my heart, God, every dream I put in the river. Put your dreams in the river today. And you will never go empty. You'll never run dry. Put your hopes, aspirations in the river of God. In the river of God. His river is flowing. His river is flowing. Let His river touch you. Let his river touch you. A few more moments. We're not in a hurry. This is why we come to church. Let his river touch you. Let his river touch your situation. Right now, right now, the Holy Spirit is bringing his presence, the presence of God, all in us and through us. We're never empty. We're never dry. Our soul is always satisfied. Our soul is always refreshed. In Jesus' name, if you believe it, can you say amen and bless them today? God bless you. You may be seated in the house of God. Thank you, band. What an amazing song that we wrote together. Together. Say amen. That's why we're twinning today. The pastor and the worship leader. We just need Adam to go home and change. And let's give it up for Adam expecting his second child. Amen. Isn't that exciting? It's official. Announced it on Facebook. So happy for him and Christina. Open up your Bible with me to 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 7. Glad that everybody is here. We're going to be learning about loving God and loving people from 1 John, the epistle. What's cool about this is that we're going to start from people and go to God in this section that we're in. Now, obviously, John has already built up love for God in other sections and in, other gos- in, his, in his gospel But right now in this section, he's going to work us through loving people in a genuine and sincere way, and then he's going to teach us how to love God in a genuine and sincere way. And I can't wait to get to that section because it's definitely not going to disappoint. It is going to be controversial. You're going to love it, though, and it's going to be lots of fun. Can I hear an amen? You all ready for this? Let's go to verse 7. Dear friends, I am not writing to you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. It is truth, its truth rather, is seen in him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Let's keep going. Anyone who claims to be in the light but still hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Notice that theme from last week. We talked about light and darkness. He continues, anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates 
say brother or sister, is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness, they do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. Let's go back up to verse 7. He considers us as friends. Remember, he wants us to fellowship with him and have fellowship with the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And he's going to continue from where we left off last week, that now that we are in Christ, we are not to make false claims, but true claims and live like Christ. That's the whole point. And when we live like Christ, we live in the light. When we make false claims or do not live in Christ, we live in the darkness. And so you don't want darkness, you want light. Now, he does a little play on the new and the old here. So follow his thinking. He says, I'm not writing you something new. I'm telling you something old. And then a little bit later, he goes, and I am writing to you something new. It's a little bit of a wordplay there, and we'll learn about more of John's wordplay in just a little bit. These men are poets in some ways. They are artistic in some ways. Let us not just read this as if it's a law book, like as if we're reading our instruction manual to the microwave or something. You know, this is a book written by a person meant to give a meaningful, emotional appeal to what they're teaching as truth. It's not based first and foremost on emotion, but it's supposed to evoke your emotions. You're supposed to feel something while you read this. And what he's doing right here is he's playing with the new and the old. And actually, Jesus did this same thing. So let's go to John 13, and then we'll go to Leviticus to kind of see how Jesus did the same thing. Now, notice we're going to John's gospel to hear this new command that John gets into, and it's going to be retrospect to an old command. And the reason why I believe John is using that language is because in his gospel, he tells us a story that no other gospel writer does. That at the Last Supper, when everybody else was talking about the communion, John, in his gospel, is talking about Jesus washing feet. And we don't see that in any of the other gospels. Now go to John chapter 13, and let's go towards the end here. Let's go to John chapter 13, starting, let's go to verse 31. When he was gone, Jesus said, and that's talking about Judas had left the party there. Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. This is explaining to why Jesus came in the flesh to die on the cross, and this glory now is going to start to be revealed and is being revealed even right now. And he says, my children, I will be with you only a little while longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new command I give you. So he says, guys, I'm leaving, and then I'm going to come back, but where I'm going, you can't go. That's because he's going to go into the grave, do the work of defeating Satan, present his blood to the Father in heaven. There's going to be a lot of stuff going on where the disciples can't go. But then he jumps right into the main point of what the cross is leading us to. It's not that we look to the cross as the main thing because it's a cross. The only reason why the cross is significant to us 
is because the main thing is happening on the cross. God's love is being displayed. So we're not worshipers of a cross. We're worshipers of God who is love, who demonstrated it on the cross. Do you all get that? Because we can get lost in kind of seeing Jesus just as a martyr. It wasn't about just Jesus being a martyr. The, The death of Jesus is important, but what's the greater purpose behind the death? What's the reason behind the death? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That's why he now bounces right back to this, and he goes, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So this is after the foot washing. He now gets very clear about the cross, and he tells them, I give you a new command. But let's go back to the notes. Is it really a new command? Let's go to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Is it really a new command? Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. As a part of the Levitical law, that's why it's called Leviticus, the Levites were in charge of things during the time of uh, Moses in the Old Testament. And here it says in Leviticus 19.18, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. Does everybody see that? Love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So if we see Jesus telling us he's giving us a new command, is it really a new command? Let's go back to the notes. It's really not. It's really not a new command. It's a play on an old command. That is why John is taking the liberty now in an epistle to explain what was going on in a gospel. Let's look at it again. I am not writing you a new command, but an old one. What is the old command they already know? What's the old command they already know? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's an old command. And he's saying, I'm not writing you a new one. That's an old command. You guys have already known that. You have heard that from the beginning. What does the first five books of the Bible start with? In the beginning. What does his gospel start with? In the beginning. This is his theme. So he's telling you, from the very beginning, we've known to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's an old command that you already have heard from the beginning. You tracking with me? But then in verse 8, he says he's writing a new command. Who's the one that used the terminology new command? Jesus, and it happened to be in his gospel. So was Jesus lying when he said, I have given you a new command, love one another, when in fact the command was already given in Leviticus? Was Jesus lying? No. What Jesus is doing is reiterating the old command in a new way. Oh, isn't that so beautiful? Took me a little time to get there, but are you there with me now? That's why we have to take time to read and understand the Bible. He's not contradicting himself, nor is even Jesus. It is an old command that we've always known, but it's given in a new way. How is it given in a new way? It's given through Matthew 5.48. Go to Matthew chapter 5.48. Here is the new way we are supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves. Now, maybe start around verse 46 so you can see the context. Go up to, say, verse 46 there. It says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? 
Are not even the tax collectors doing that? If you only greet your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And if we started in verse 43, we would actually hear him say, you have heard it say, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your your enemies, pray for them, that you may be children of your Father. And that's why he gives that illustration. You you are going to be different than pagans. You're not just going to greet those who look like like you, vote like you, and, uh, you know, agree with you. You're going to greet and bless everybody, okay? And so now, how do we see the new application of this law that we've had from the Old Testament that we are going to do it perfectly? Everybody say perfectly. You are going to now love perfectly. But how can you love from your heart perfectly if you have an impure heart? I'm glad you asked. Go to Ezekiel chapter 36. God will work the word. Somebody say work it. In Ezekiel chapter 36, we see how this old command is going to be applied in a new way. That in the Old Testament, they did not have, verse uh, 24 of chapter 36 of Ezekiel, they did not have a born-again relationship with God because Jesus had not yet died on the cross and they did not have a spiritual rebirth. Though they could serve God and obey God and experience God, it would be like how we gave the example of the river in our time of worship. It would be like them being in a shower versus to us being born again, living in the river. They could come and get a shower and feel the presence. David said, man, I just wish I could be in your presence all day long. No place I'd rather be. I like to dwell here, remember? He said that in his Psalms. But that wasn't uh, the normal thing. Most people couldn't even be there. They would only see God's presence, like a cloud by day, a fire by night. And only on the special ones would that shower of the presence of God come, like the priests and kings and so forth and prophets. And yet in the New Testament, the prophecies are fulfilled that God's going to come in us and through us, and we're going to be in the river and in his presence. We'll apply this now to love. And I'm getting somewhere with all of this theology because it will have its application, but I want to give this final scripture for the basis of theology. Look at what he says in verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new, I will give you a new what? A new what? Heart. Where does love come from? The heart. And we're supposed to be perfect in our love. How can we do that if we have dirty hearts? What is the new covenant? What is the new way of doing this? God gives us a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove from you your heart of stone, your heart of racism, your heart of ethnocentrism, your heart of revenge, your heart of bitterness, and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, in you, and move you to keep and follow my decrees and to be careful to keep all of my laws. Go back to 1 John, please. Isn't this beautiful when you see it working out? It's an old command we've had from the beginning. Love your neighbor as yourself. Sounds easy enough, but we always failed at it. We were never good at it. Humanity stunk at doing it. But God gave us a promise that he was going to give us a new heart. And there at the communion table, John reminds us that the new heart is going to give us a new love, a new way to keep this command of loving each other because Jesus is going to die for our sins, give us that new heart, and we'll have the same love he has. Isn't that special? The application is amazing. 
You cannot say back to God now, I can't do this, God. Even if you are being oppressed and being abused and being hurt, nobody can say back to God, I can't love my enemy. Because the Bible says you can love your enemy. He'll give you a new heart to move you to love your enemy. We can't say now, well, God, I can only love my neighbor and I'm going to hate my enemy like the beatitude that was correcting. We can't say that anymore. Like, I don't have this ability. Naturally, you're right, you don't have that ability. For, for all of us, naturally, in the flesh, it's impossible. But he's saying, I'm going to make it possible now. I'm going to give you a new heart. Now, that doesn't mean you agree with injustice or the things that your enemies do, but it's saying that I will not let hate take over my heart. John is teaching us that if we want to truly live in the light, and let's review the verses we've already read now, 9 and 10, that if we truly want to live in the light, we cannot have hate of any kind in our hearts. And he's already teaching us that when the hate is gone and the new heart is there, nothing can make us stumble. He's already getting to some of the points he's going to be making further in more detail, but he gives us a little taste of it here, that when you have perfect love in you, you can be perfect in your actions like your heavenly father. See, most of us get quiet and don't want to say amen when we hear the command to be perfect like our heavenly father's perfect. What do you mean, preacher? That's not going to happen. No, that is supposed to happen because when you're in the light, there's no more darkness in you. There is nothing that can make you stumble. There is not one sin that can catch you off guard because you're in the light now. And so if you think about these three words, it will complete this whole thought. When you live in the light, you live in love. Live, light, and love. Those three words are encompassing his whole point here. When you live in the light, you live in love. And you don't stumble. Let's see why it's connected to stumbling. Go to Galatians chapter 5, verse 14. I love how the apostles uh, compliment each other in their epistles, and they probably didn't even have uh, each other's epistles, and yet they're just complimenting each other. Oftentimes, we look at the New Testament as if it's one book. No, it's 27 different books written by many different authors that the church gathered together, and yet these apostles are not contradicting each other. Look at what it says here when we talk about how when we love our neighbor, we will fulfill the law. Look at, say, verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love for the entire law. Somebody say the entire law. Thank you. The entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Because think about it. If I love you, will I steal from you? If I love you, will I cheat on your wife? I'll cheat on your, cheat with your wife, rather. You get my point. If I love you, will I curse you out? So think of all of those commands that were given. Thou shall not covet. Thou shall not lie. Thou shall not steal. All of these things, if I loved you as I loved myself, I would keep all of those laws perfectly, wouldn't I? And therefore, the law is really for the lawless, and lawless people are technically loveless. Lawless people are loveless people. They're not loving you as they love themselves. 
They're not treating you as they're treating themselves. So if we go back to the notes, we can see that John is teaching us the very same thing of Paul. And he's saying, when you walk in the light, and just get the illustration, when you're in a room that's lit up, you don't stumble over the Legos your kids left behind. But when you come in that room in the middle of the night and you don't have the light on or proper light, you step on the Legos and you don't know what makes you stumble. And it's the same idea here. If we're going through the world and we're continually stumbling and we're asking the question, why is it I can't get along with people? Why is it every one of my relationships turns out bad? Why is it all my coworkers end up hating me at every job? Why is it that I continually uh, do these things that get me in trouble, et cetera, et cetera? You're in the darkness. That's why you can't see what's making you stumble. But when we're in Christianity, as he said before, even if we sin, we can be forgiven. We know what makes us stumble. We're aware of it. And if we choose the right choice, we'll never stumble. That's what he's going to go on to say later in the book, that not only do you not have to sin like now in the present, you don't ever have to sin again as a Christian. That every place you go in life now, you should be going with a big flashlight on, a big beam of light that lets you see every temptation clearly for what it is. So you won't ever have to stumble into temptation. You won't ever have to do that. That God's light is that bright, that God's light is that good, that you can overcome all temptation. That Jesus' literal prayer of you being delivered from, uh, you know, not led into temptation, delivered from evil will come to pass. Amen? And then that's why he says in verse 11, but if you hate, and if you allow hatred in your heart, you become darkened. And that's the opposite of that. And so we are not to allow the devil to deceive us with hate. Hate is not something that we should have in our hearts and bear towards one another, even towards our enemies if they hate us or mistreat us. We can hate what they do. As the old saying goes, love the sinner but hate the sin. But we are not to turn our hatred towards a person. And I could show you that in the book of Genesis, don't have time, but it talks about why God judged the world and sent the flood in the book of Genesis. It's because they murdered each other and had no regard for the image of God that was upon humanity. And he said, because they're not honoring humanity that I created, I'm going to now wipe them off the face of the earth. And Jesus then said in the new covenant that to hate is the same as murder. So the connection is right there. Those who are hating, we are murdering. We are uh, trying to end the image of God in them. We don't want them to continue. And so that's why we are not acting in Christ. We're in darkness because even if we want justice and all those things, we shouldn't hate them. We would want the best for them. We want them to have repentance because we don't want anyone to go to the hell that was prepared for the devil and his angels. Heaven has a place for everybody. When God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross, he did that for the whole world. So that's why if we hate and put our emotions towards the people, we're actually getting in the way of God's grace. We're getting in the way of God's love. We're getting in the way of God's forgiveness. That once again doesn't mean we don't enact justice on the earth or things like a death penalty. We'll be like the priest who comes up to them before they die. Do you want to make your peace with God? Because you're about ready to meet him. 
Because that teaches others not to commit crimes, and we want to put the fear of the law into people's hearts. But even then, we don't hate them. We want the best for them. Like the thief on the cross, we want them to accept Christ before they perish. Amen? And if Jesus could say to that thief, today you'll be with me in paradise, he can say that to our abusers. He can say that to our oppressors. He can say that to anybody who truly wants to be saved, from the jail cell to a corrupt politician to the worst of humanity. We should pray that they will be saved. Can I hear an amen to that from everybody? Come on, amen and amen. Now that we understand what love for people looks like, he's going to give us a little spoken word. Let's go to our next passage here. John is going to give us like a little rap. He's going to give us a little poem here. And in many of your translations, let's say if you have the NIV, it kind of spaces it out differently and it makes it look different than a normal paragraph. Here, I just have it as a normal paragraph. And the reason why that is, is because the translators are trying to help you to see that the way the language is being used here, it's fresh, it's hip, it's cool. And this is all throughout the Bible, actually. You'll see this in Paul's writings. You'll see this in in other leaders' writings throughout the scriptures. And so get his point here now. He's going to repeat himself. It's basically two verses of a song. He's going to give a more spoken word. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Second verse. I, will write, to, I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Maybe he would have a fedora on and be like, I am writing you, dear children. You know, it's something like poetic like that. Or maybe he's singing it. I am writing you, my dear mijos and mijas, my niños and niñas, rather, my dear children. You know, like, who knows what attitude he's in at at this moment, but we know it's something special. We know it's something endearing. It's supposed to strike the emotions. There's three people he's speaking to, fathers, young men, and children. Now, before you get all patriarchal on the Bible and get mad at it, uh, chances are he's identifying these people in in the male and not the female because he doesn't want to be weird with the ladies writing a poem or a song. So this would be somewhat similar of me writing to the men a Facebook message and and not including the women, you know, because I wouldn't want to be inappropriate writing you a letter to make you think that it was more than about the gospel. We know that John loves ladies because in his second epistle, it's directed towards a woman pastoring a church. So it's an amazing testimony of women leaders in the church. So right here, I think he just sticks with a safe boundary. He addresses the male audience, those probably he had sleepovers with, those he had probably shared long periods of alone time with. And he's now breaking them down into the categories of life, fathers, young men, children. He starts with children. Then he bounces to father and he goes back to young men. I don't know why, but that's just what he does. When we look at those three, those three different people he's mentioning, some have tried to read into that and think that he's talking about children as new disciples, young men, as deacons, and the fathers are the elders of the church. 
So he's speaking to the new, new Christians, and he's saying, all you new believers here, you know, remember these things. All of you deacons and servants now, you know, you're starting to grow in your faith as young men. Do these things or remember these things. And then the fathers, the elders, you're like this. That would be reading more into it than what we have, but it's a great, it's a great way to think about it. Very well could be his intention. But what we do know for a fact is that he mentions certain truths that we know apply to everyone. Let's go to verse 12. What applies to all children? Now, by the way, that could be female as well, right? But uh, sorry, you have to go up. Good, sir. Your sins have been forgiven, thank you, on account of his, on account of his what? Name. Is your sin forgiven on account of all the prayer you've prayed, all the prayers you've prayed, all your good works? Are your sins forgiven because you've been such a good boy, a good girl? No, your sins, my sins are forgiven on account of his name, on the name of Jesus and what he did for us. What a truth, powerful truth that's written there. The next thing to the fathers, he says, because you know him who is from the beginning. Isn't that a great theme that John continually brings us back to? The beginning. The beginning. You know, you would think that people would understand that to have a beginning, someone must have begun it. To have a first chapter in a book, that means there's an author who wrote it. And yet people today in our generation, they still think watches can make themselves, books can come out of explosions and printing factories, and the cells of your body can arrange themselves by their own. But John is not going to let you get away from that. From his gospel to the epistle, now to his poem, he's always putting in there the truth. This is the one from the beginning. This is not a made-up God like the other gods who have beginnings. This is a God that created the universe and gave time its beginning. So when time began, my God was there. That's what he's saying. And he's saying, fathers, you know him. You don't just know about him. Here's the truth here that we should glean from this. You know him. What a beautiful distinction between us and other religions, especially the popular ones of our day, like Hinduism and uh, Islam and Buddhism. Christianity teaches a personal relationship with a personal God, unique to all the world's major religions. There are some other religions that teach uh, personal relationships, like the woman who believes she's possessed by the spirit of an alien, etc. But in the world's, and she's crazy, we know that. But in the world's major religions, this is a unique concept. It's not that we go to a temple and worship a person named Jesus like they worship a person named Hercules, and only Hercules hangs out with the king or the, the, you know, the Caesar. No, it's we all get to know him. We all get to hang out with him. And that's why he started from the very beginning. Our fellowship is with the father and his son. And then the next thing that he says here, which he's going to repeat over and over in this epistle, is to the young men, the truth that we can glean from that is that you've overcome the evil one. Powerful, powerful, powerful. It's, it's not that you're just going to overcome, but now in Christ you have overcome. So get those lessons right here that we are to receive from his poem, his, his spoken word. We are forgiven of our sins because of Jesus. We know God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit because of Jesus. And we overcome the devil because of Jesus. Amen? That is powerful. Now he kind of just switches it around. He says, children, because you know the Father, which is very similar to what he had said to the fathers in the previous verse. He repeats the same thing back to the fathers again. You have known him from the beginning. And then young men, he encourages them. He says, you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. This is why we believe it's a song. You know, he's expressing his points in a little bit different of verbiage, adding a little bit of flair to it. 
And I love what he says there, you are strong. Look at your neighbor and say, you are strong. You are strong. You are strong. The word of God lives in you. The word of God is alive in you. And once again, you have overcome the evil one. So let's look at today's lesson before we go to the next verse and passage. We are to love people by walking in the light. We are not to walk in hate and walk in the darkness. When we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we do not stumble. We are aware of what sins are in this culture, and we're able to love properly and live in that light, live in love. And then he gives us a poem about overcoming the devil, having our sins forgiven, knowing God personally. And then today's section will end with us not living the world, and this is where I'll get a little bit of controversial, and I know you guys will love it. Can I hear an amen to that? All right, thank you. Let's go to verse 15. It's a very simple passage. Everybody should get it. It says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So let's just keep the passage up. Very basic. We understand. Don't love the world or anything that's in it. Because if you're doing that, you don't have the love of the Father. So now we see two types of love. Love for the world and love for the Father. If you notice, he doesn't say love for the devil. Because he's not dealing with people that are going to be that far from the truth. He's dealing with people who may want to try to have one foot in the world and one foot with Christianity. And he's telling them, I know you're not Satanists. I know you don't think it's okay to do these kinds of crazy things out there. But you may be deceived to start loving the world. And in doing so, you will have stopped truly loving the Father. Now, what's unique about this is that the word world is the same word that is used in John 3, 16, when it says, God so loved the world. Some people have tried to say that means God loves all your sin. And John's contradicting Jesus now. Well, would he do that? Of course not. Because where does John 3, 16 come from? Who wrote that gospel? John. So don't you think he understands the way world is used? What he is teaching us is the distinction between people and their sin. This is actually where I get the idea, the concept of loving people but hating their sin. Some people have actually gotten so radical, they say, we're, we're supposed to hate sinners too. Some of the Old Testament passages say, I hate them with a holy hatred and all of this, and that the new covenant doesn't change that. We are still to hate our enemies, which, which by the way would contradict literally what Jesus said when he said, don't hate your enemies, and that this is the new command. But anyways, they try to put these uh, passages against each other to make that point, but that is not true. That is not true. We're not hating people. Otherwise, the Bible is contradicting itself. But take it complimentary. What does it say in John 3.16? God loves world. What does it say in uh, uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 uh, and 15? Don't love world. So could it be talking about the same kind of world? No. What is the kind of world that we love like Jesus loves in John 3.16? people. What kind of world don't we love like God does not love in 1 John 2? Sinful things. Isn't that simple? 
When you read the Bible, you'll understand the Bible. And so now we can understand that we are to make a choice in what we give our love and attention to. And I love what C.S. Lewis said. It's not that we love too much in the world, like have too much of a love in our heart for these things. It's actually we don't have enough love for God that drowns out the desires for the other things. So it's not like, you know, when somebody says, man, I'm just, you know, so tempted by this and it's such a strong desire and I, and I don't know what to do with it. The problem isn't your quote unquote strong desire for this thing in the world. Your problem is you don't have a stronger desire for the father. So really all sin issues are love issues. Going back to our neighbor example of how we love people. We love people and treat them right. So if we're not treating them right, it's a love issue. And if we're not obeying God's commands, it's not because we don't have enough willpower or just the world is so tempting you can't overcome it. No, it's because you don't have a heart that's been changed, giving you perfect love so you can love perfectly. If God gives you a perfect heart, as it says he will do, according to Ezekiel 36, as a prophecy, a new heart is given in you, a perfectly pure heart. If you don't have that, you can't love perfectly. But if you've been given a perfect heart, can you love perfectly? Doesn't it say, let's just go back there so everybody can see it. Go back to Ezekiel chapter 36. Does it not say that he will move you to keep all of his commands? So you cannot say that I can't keep the commands of God. Go to Ezekiel chapter 36 and see what it says in verse 27. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Highlight that so they can see that, please. So can anybody say I can't keep God's laws? Like truly you can't, not as, not as an honest person. You could say it in lie, you can say the words, but you can't say it as an honest person. The honest truth is you are able to keep God's commands if you are given a new heart. If you want a new heart, God will give you and I a new heart to love our neighbors as ourselves every time, not just sometime, every time. You will have a heart to lead and to guide you to keep all of God's laws. Let's go back to the passage in John, please. See it clearly. Don't love the world or anything in it. When we start loving the Father with 100% of our heart, do we have anything left for the world? No. And when we love the Father with 100% of our heart, somebody asked me before, I said, well, where's, where's the love for my kids then? Where's the love for my family? If I've given it all to Jesus, but hold on. If I love God with all my heart, doesn't he guide my heart towards my family? Doesn't he guide my heart 100% of it? Doesn't he flow it like a river? Doesn't he flow it to be poured out on children and so forth and so on? But what am I doing? I'm giving God my gallon of, of milk. I'm giving him all of my heart, and I'm letting him pour it out wherever he wants. And so, yes, you can have things nice in the world. You can have a nice house, a nice car, a nice job, friends, and all of those things. But you are not to give your love to them first and foremost. You give your love to God. And then God gives you a love for the people and the things you do in life. God gives you a love for your job because he gives you the right job that you were created for. God gives you a love, come on, somebody, for the right spouse, for the children, and so forth and so on. And so all of us, are to be led in our love by God, not by just what the world calls the emotion of love, 
true love, biblical love, the spirit of God kind of love, the kind of love that does the will of God. That love lives forever. Remember, love, light, and live, live, light, and love. Here it is again. When we live in the light and love the Father, we live forever. The things we have that are outside of God's purposes and plans, those things die. You put an unhealthy interest in even being a parent, an unhealthy interest in your job, an unhealthy interest, desire for these other things. When you die, those things die as well. You don't get to bring your children with you to heaven. You don't get to bring your job with you. Your children can come, but they have to come by putting God first. So if you put all of these misplaced emotional things, uh, this uh, misplaced emotion called love on these things, you will lose them in the end. But the things you love rightly first with God and allow him to lead you, all of those things will last forever. If not those literal things, literal relationships, the rewards of doing those things will last forever. The reward of going to school as unto God. The reward of working your job as unto God. The reward of those things will last forever. You will tell the story about how you loved God and did all of these things according to his will on the earth. Now let's talk about what the Bible says is the love for the world. This is where it gets controversial. Have I prepared you guys for it? Amen. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. What's the best example I can come up with right now for the lust of the flesh? Let's go to the Super Bowl. Y'all ready? This seemed to be controversial this week. A lot of Latinos and, and Latinas here thought that their culture was being picked on. And let me just say this right here. I am not a racist, not a racist bone in my body. So whatever you might have been picking up from others, let's not put that into this conversation. Let's just have a normal pastor congregation uh, conversation here. I didn't watch the Super Bowl. I didn't even know last week was the Super Bowl. I didn't even know it. That's just me. I, I know when Survivor starts. I know when other shows start. But for me, I don't know when Super Bowl starts. That's just me, okay? When I heard about everything going down via my wife, here was my first concern, and don't anybody get embarrassed here if we looked at your social media or had fun with you on social media talking about this. We love our church, and we're first and foremost going to pastor our church and keep it real, okay? So as these conversations were going on and I started seeing them, the first thing that I began to realize is that while people were picking sides, they didn't know where the sides originally came from. Let me just talk to you about us as a church. I'm just talking to you about us. If you are on the side of J-Lo against what your pastor's wife is saying, you, you don't know what's going on. You're being tricked and bamboozled. If you find yourself on the side of an argument where J-Lo's right and my wife is wrong, you're not woke to what's really happening. Because J-Lo doesn't have a marriage like my wife. J-Lo doesn't have a testimony of purity like my wife. My wife got married as a virgin. Uh, J-Lo doesn't have the testimony of living for Jesus like my wife, okay? So that's the first thing is that when you're picking sides, you've got to look behind the side. What is the force? What is the spirit? What is the movement moving that side? Is it the spirit of God? And I'm not trying to say my wife is always right or I'm always right. Just understand if you're picking a side against your pastors, against the people that love you and care for you and have godly testimonies and taking the side of someone who makes a living dancing around in lingerie, chances are you're already doing it wrong. Okay, just, just, just understand this. Not everybody who looks like you is you. 
Not everybody who talks like you is you. You've got to make sure that what you identify as you or what you are a part of is what you believe in here, not on the external. Because I could show you a bunch of crazy stuff in Italian culture. My wife could show you a bunch of crazy stuff in Greek culture. And I could just claim, you know, Miley Cyrus for my own and say she's my white culture. Are you guys listening to me? So that's first and foremost is we want to see what's going on behind the scenes. What's going on behind this? Why is this an issue right now? Why is my pastor fired up? Why are godly women that I know and love who disciple me and teach me, why are they fired up about something? Just take a step back before you get into it. That way you can understand a little bit more. The second thing is that we need to understand as Christians is that we judge things by the word of God. We judge what the word of God says and then filter everything by it. Lust of the flesh. How many are aware of what happened at the Super Bowl? Would you say lust of the flesh would be a great way to describe the halftime show? Absolutely. For those of you who don't know what happened, God bless you. You're better than us who do know. I wish I could unsee some of that stuff. All you have to do is just get the lyrics out. Don't have me put up J-Lo's song, Booty, up here that she sang on the halftime show. I was going to read it up here, but then I said I have children in here, and I don't even want to introduce them to the allegory and the imagery that she uses in her, her song, Booty. Now, this is what has come back to us as we have tried to help you understand that that's sinful. As people have said back to us, you don't understand my culture. Culture has nothing to do with it. We're, we're judging by sin. We're judging by sin. Number two, people have said, well, gymnastic ladies dress like this. People who are in swimsuits and dive competitions dress like this. But let me ask you a question. Let's just ask everybody here. When J-Lo sings the song Booty, is that the equivalent reaction that she wants? Or, uh, is it equivalent to watching a girl do gymnastics in an outfit that is presentable for her sport so she can be flexible? Is, is the reaction that J-Lo is trying to get, is that the same reaction that the gymnast wants? When the gymnast watches, when you watch the gymnast, I wish I could say this right, Lord help me. When you watch the gymnast or the woman in a swimsuit doing a dive competition, does she hold her private area, talk about her booty, and want all of you to look at those areas of her body? Shakira talking about the top part of her breast and all of that in another one of her songs. Is th does the woman who's doing gymnastics, who's doing a sport, is that what she wants you to do? Now, for those of you who still say yes, well, then I'll give up gymnastics if you give up J-Lo, okay? But let's just be honest about it. In the lyrics of their songs and the way they were touching themselves, we're not talking about every Latin dance is dirty or everything like that is dirty. What we're saying is the song lyrics and the way they were touching themselves, drawing attention to their body, having people around them in that atmosphere as they're drawing attention to their body, is that not a perfect example of lust of the flesh? That's an exact example of what it is. And yet... We tell our boys and girls not to live in lust or to stare at girls or to talk dirty to girls or, you know, not to cause these kinds of scenes in their schools. I mean, could you wear that at your school? And yet we promote it in front of our entertainment. And so what we need to do is, number one, we need to understand that people who've been around in the faith for a while are trustworthy. You should listen to us before you argue with us, number one. But we'll argue with you. We don't mind. But I'm just saying, listen before you argue. And then number two, ask yourself, what is people's purpose in doing that? Now, right now, I'm preaching. 
But I could start juking. And how many know if I start juking, I'm doing something different? But I even have on the same clothes. But if I start dropping it like it's hot, if I start juking, what am I now doing even in these clothes? I'm wanting to bring attention to myself. It's the same thing with a guy taking his shirt off. There's nothing unbiblical about a man taking his shirt off. But if a man takes his shirt off in such a way where he's licking his lips, staring at you across the beach or whatever at the pool, that's perverse. The same guy could have his shirt off over here and just be with his family, just be hanging out. So we can't say that an outfit just makes it perverse because people were, were right to point out that, yeah, gymnasts wear almost the same kind of outfits, but they're not doing the same kind of thing in the outfit. What else is a lust of the flesh? A lust of the flesh is all of our desires to do what the flesh wants us to do. The flesh wants us to have sex continually, not to be married. Your body does not recognize a spouse. It's not like you can only have sex with your spouse. Your body will have sex with multiple people. And it doesn't matter whether or not it comes natural to you or unnatural to you. If the Bible says it's not for you, it's not for you. For some of you, it may be natural to find the same sex attractive. But that doesn't make it right because it's natural for you. It's natural for me to have, have sex with multiple women. That's natural for me. My body would not resist me doing that. My body would be like, all right, let's go. And that's, that's part of the obvious thing that the Bible says we fight against. That's obviously wrong. And so when we look at the lust of the flesh, it's not just perversion in, in the you know, dancing realm. It's perversion in our lifestyle. It's perversion in our words, the, the way that we speak. You know, just like I, I've talked to some of the ladies at this church as they were wanting to learn how to date like a Christian, wrote a book on that, and they asked me, you know, how do I know, how do I know? If the guy does not know how to speak the word of God to you, if he does not know how to encourage you, that man has alternative motives. Now, he can, he can still speak the word and be a snake. Don't get me wrong. But chances are, if you see a man speaking the word, loving the things of God, he's not going to then use his words to, to fulfill his appetite of the flesh. You can learn a lot about people's lusts by the way they talk, by the way they look. And that brings us into the next thing. He says, the lust of the eyes. Those things that we look at and that we want. And this can get into materialism. We want this car, we want this house, we want these clothes, we want this purse, we want these shoes. And these things can drive us to do things we normally wouldn't do if we were serving God the way we're supposed to. You'll spend more money than you make. You'll begin to boast about what you have. You'll be jealous of what others have compared to what you have. And then you'll begin to stop giving to the church because you're more motivated by your greed than meeting a need. And the Bible says that the lust of the eyes is natural to the man who is outside or woman outside of God. How many know if you see something shiny, you get attracted to it? Our jewelry, we see something shiny. How many know if you see something uh, attractive, you're going to look at it? That's why men, I always tell you to, you know, if you stare, that's when it's sin. But if you see a beautiful woman, just turn your head and go, thank you, Jesus, that I have you in my heart, and I don't have to keep looking at that, you know? Look at Jesus on the cross instead of just looking at that woman. But you, you don't have to deny whether or not there's people who are beautiful or handsome. The idea is you're not staring, you're not lusting, and you're not desiring this over the things of God. Obviously, I had to appreciate my wife and think she was beautiful. That wasn't lust. So not appreciating beauty is, is lust. You'll know the difference. And then the last thing the Bible says is the pride of life. And what does that look like? 
That looks like what people were doing when they were arguing with us, saying they still wanted to believe this was all right with the Super Bowl. Because anytime you deal with somebody on sin, what do they now want to do? Who are you to judge me? I don't, I don't believe that. I don't need that. Who, you're not my God. Who are you, etc.? And then pride comes up. And it's not just for the Super Bowl, but I'm using it as an example. So much pride. And I can say this to you, that all of us, when we're in sin, we're prideful. What is the root of all sin? Pride. What was the root of Adam and Eve's sin? Pride. What was the root of Satan's sins? Pride. Uh, what was the, what's the root of your sin yesterday? Pride. Because we're choosing to do something other than what God has told us to do. When God says, don't do this, we say, I still want to do it. Now, let me just share this with you because we have a lot of new Christians here. The church is always growing. Many of you, this is your first real church you've gotten committed to. Listen to me when I, when I tell you this. It's okay you didn't know, but now you do know. Okay, some of you, you were watching Game of Thrones unedited before you came to this church, and now I'm warning you, don't watch it like that anymore. Get an edited version. Some of you were just so unaware of what J-Lo and Shakira were presenting you in their songs. You were just thinking that was a love song, that was a dance song, but now you're aware. Some of you gentlemen here, you were unaware that playing those video games stirred up anger or stirred up a jealousy in your heart or stirred up ungodly things. Or some of you here were a part of a business or in your company doing things dishonorably because of the pride of life. But now you know. When you are convicted and the Lord has spoken that to you, he is doing that out of love. Do something about it now. Respond to it. I know when I first got saved, listen to me, friends. I had two hoop earrings in, I smoked cigarettes, and I cursed, and I didn't think there was anything wrong with hanging out with ladies that I wasn't in relationship with but was attracted to in late hours of the night. So I still had a lot of friends that were girls, girls that were friends. Are you listening? And one day, my mom came into the bedroom because I moved home because I had been living on my own for a while. She came into my house, and uh, I mean, came into my room, and I had a girl in my room at like 2 in the morning, and she's like, what are you doing? I'm like, this is just my friend. We're just hanging out, you know. She's like, you need to get her out or get out of this house. You know, she was somewhat polite to her but more rude to me, but the girl had to leave right then and there. And, you see, my mom was looking out for me. You know, I could have tried to, to fight, like, you know, where's the line? Like, Mom, I'm a Christian now, and I haven't sinned. I haven't done anything. But how many know if I would have kept making it a habit to hanging out with girls like that at 2 in the morning in my bedroom, how many know I wouldn't have stayed a born-again virgin very long? My mother was seeing something down the road that I could not yet see. And then once she told me about it, it made perfect sense. Because the next day when that girl called me up to do the same thing, now I saw it differently. Because now I understood like, okay, you really are okay with this. And I know that you like me because you've said it before. I know what you're trying to do. You want to be with me. You're hoping that this will become something that I don't want it to be. And I just saw it as temptation. And I know guys do it too, but I'm just giving you the example in my life. People were looking out for me. The same thing with looking out for like Harry Potter and things like that. I know many of you are like, hey, I used to watch Harry Potter before I became a Christian. What's the big deal? But listen to us. We were Christians before you were, and we were here when Harry Potter came out, okay? Harry Potter has a tendency to turn children's minds towards witchcraft. Now, you might say, well, there's these shows that always have this kind of waving of the wand. It's no different. It's just, you know, it's just make-believe. But no, it's not. Uh, Harry Potter uh, promotes the use of witchcraft and having these kinds of powers and spells and all that. And it puts things in children's minds that normally wouldn't come if you watch Snuffleupagus disappear on Sesame Street. 
Nobody's now saying, how can I do the spell of Snuffleupagus? But you have people wanting to do the spells of Harry Potter. I've seen grown adults do this. Get the wand, go to Disney World, start saying all the names, waving the thing around. You guys know what I'm talking about. We're trying to help you. We're not trying to hurt you. Yeah, you, you could probably draw a line and say, well, if I don't commit the witchcraft and I don't desire the witchcraft, but I'm just listening to the story, can I do it? You know, and if, you know, blah, 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 blah. And you, you make all of these, you know, these exceptions for yourself. What you're not doing is guarding yourself. It's the same thing with music. And so when I first came to the Lord and I was listening to all that music, I started to get convicted. I started to change. I took the hoops out of my, my uh, the hoops, earrings out of my ears, not because someone made me, but be, I began to realize that the image, the way I was talking, the way I was looking, you know what I'm talking about, especially with these guys. You know, they always take these selfies, like with that smoky eye look, you know. And, I can always tell looking at them. It's like, dude, you are literally saying, I'll sleep with your wife. I'll sleep with your girlfriend. All you ladies come holler at me. That's literally what you're saying. I know these guys inside and out too because I used to be one of those guys. So anyways, I took out the earrings. I took out, uh, I stopped talking the way I talked. I stopped hanging out the way I was hanging out. And then guess what happened? A lot of that temptation left. I'm not saying all of it left, but I was no longer tempted to sleep with a girl anymore. I was tempted that night to sleep with a girl. I, I put myself into temptation. And the Bible says that we should pray to be delivered from temptation. Let me show it to you in the scriptures. Go quickly with me as Adam comes um, and Rachel. Hebrews chapter 13. Somebody say, trust your leaders. Amen. We're keeping watch over you. Look at Hebrews chapter 13. Look at verse 17. Well, let's go to verse 7. Go to verse 7, then we'll go to verse 17. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You notice that that statement, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, is popular, and we think it's just like good theology. Jesus has always been the same. Him coming in the flesh doesn't change him being God. He's always been God, etc. But notice the context of it. The context is if God was there with your leaders or with the people in the past, he'll be with you now. And if we see humanity go another 2,000 years from the time of this writing, he'll be with those people like he was with the, the originals. Do you see how powerful that is now? Jesus is always the same. So Jesus would not want you to be a part of the lust of the flesh. Jesus would not want you to be a part of the lust of the eyes. Jesus doesn't want you to have the pride of life because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do you all believe that? Okay, so it says, remember your leaders. When we speak to you about things that you're still scratching your head about, can you see the outcome of our way of life? There are people here, some of you are new, I understand that, but there are people here who have known us for almost 15 years. People here were in my wedding. Ricky was in my wedding. Ricky knows my marriage. Ricky knows my way of life. Why would you take J-Lo's side over what I'm trying to help you to see? Or my wife's side. Why would you take J-Lo's boyfriend? Or are they married now? Are they just shacking up? They're engaged, so they're shacking up living sin. What's his name? Alex Rodriguez. Alex Rodriguez. A Rod, right? I'm so proud of my wife. She danced around in lingerie and made all the boys lust. I'm so happy for her. Like that's what that's what he thinks. I don't care what he thinks. All he knew how to do in life, in my opinion, was take a wooden bat and hit a ball with it. 
that is going to perish. Do you understand? He's already on what? His second or third marriage? She's already on her second or third marriage? These are not your examples, friends. I don't care if they look like you. Trump might look like me. I'm not following his example and touching women and having five wives and all this baby mama drama. I don't care if they look like you or look like me. Do they look like Jesus? Do they look like your leaders who spoke the word of God to you? Remember your leaders in an argument. Don't remember J-Lo. Who cares about J-Lo? She makes you pay to go to her concert anyway. She's not your friend. She's never given you one thing free. But your leaders have given you everything for free. Their time, their life, their, their, their you know, being with you. You don't have to pay to go to their concert and go to verse 17 now. Because it's not about a leader because leaders can let you down, right? But it says have confidence in your leaders. Submit to their authority. Why? Because they have to keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. And so I want to say to this church, thank you for letting us pastor you. Because how many know I've got to give an account to Jesus on what was lust in this culture? If I saw lust in this culture and I didn't warn you against it, then I wouldn't be a good leader. At the end of the day, it's your choice. That's right. But if I didn't warn you about it, I wouldn't be a good leader. I'm not doing this so I can look better and more holier than thou. I'm trying to help a culture. And may, let me maybe make this last point. A lot of churches are afraid of you. That's why they don't make these points. They stay out of politics. They stay out of entertainment. They stay out of all the issues of abortion, LGBTQ. You look at their Facebook post, you would think the only thing that matters in life is that book they're selling. They don't talk about anything controversial. The reason is, it's not because they don't believe like how I believe. It's that they do, but they're afraid of you. They're afraid to stand in front of their church of 10,000 people and go, I don't let my daughter watch the halftime show. I don't know any godly pastor in this city that would approve of that. Not one. Not Choco. Not Berry Hill. Not any pastor. Not Bill Winston. Not any pastor I've ever sat down and would ever do that in 100 years. And I don't want to mention their names about being scary, but I can just tell you, if they're not talking about it, if others like them are not talking about it, it's because I know a lot of people, not naming those names, but other people, that are just scared to come tell their church what stuff is. Like, this is sin. This is not right. Let's do better. Let's move on to something else. Let's just agree this is sin. Let's talk about gymnastics another day. We don't have to bring it up right now, but if you want, we'll argue about it with you. But it's not about gymnastics. It's about a woman holding her crotch, singing about her booty. That's the problem we have here. Okay, And some people brought up, well, what about Dances with the Stars? That's why I don't watch Dances with the Stars. I can't watch a lot of TV. How many of you realize once you got saved, you couldn't watch a lot of TV? If you're all still watching the same kind of TV shows you did before you got saved, I wonder if you're even saved. How many of you changed some stuff after you got saved? How many of you had to change what you were watching? You can't watch it like the way you watched it. You can't enjoy it like the way you enjoyed it. And so here's the thing, going back to the notes, let's end it out. I, I knew, I told you it was going to be a little controversial. But do you want to love God and people the way the Bible says? Here's how we love people. We love them by forgiving them and not hating them. We treat them the way we want to be treated, with the new heart God gave us. How do we love God? We love God by not living in lust. We avoid lust. And if you ever think I'm in lust or you think I'm approving of something in lust, please let me know. 
And maybe lastly, in closing, somebody say, what if I want to do that with my husband or dance like that? That's the whole point. That's meant for your husband. That's meant for being by yourself. Amen? You can wear lingerie with your husband. Can I hear an amen to that? You don't wear your lingerie in front of others' husbands. Okay? I don't think I need to say more about that. Praise God. Let's all stand up and give it up for Jesus today. Thank you for coming. We love you, Lord. We want to love people. Band and altar workers, would you come? Let's close out in prayer. Father, we thank you. We love you. We're so glad that we can learn about you here. And we ask, first and foremost, if anyone doesn't know you here, Lord, that they will come to know and love you. If you're not born again, just ask Jesus into your heart to change your life. As we read in Ezekiel, to give you a new heart. Ask God to change your heart. Some of the ways you'll know if you need a new heart is if you've lived in hate or if you've lived in lust or you've been prideful. Ask God to change your heart. I know that he will. He did it for me many years ago. As the rest of us here are letting those pray, let's look at our hearts as Christians. If we're already Christians, look at your heart. Have you loved your brother? Have you even loved your enemy? If you've been harboring hate as a Christian, ask God to forgive you so you don't walk in darkness. Release that hate and give forgiveness. It doesn't mean approval. It just means that you're trusting God with the judgment. If you're here today as a Christian and you would say, Pastor, I have struggled with the lust of the flesh. I have struggled with the lust of my eyes and the pride of life. Ask God to forgive you right now. So all of us should be praying, looking at our hearts, whether we're becoming Christians for the first time or being encouraged to live for Jesus. Right now, look at our hearts, God. Show us who we are. Take out the lust of my heart, God. Let it not be in my heart. Let me have eyes only for my wife, O God. Let me not desire the things of this world, O God, above your plan for my life. O God, may I be humble. Make me humble, Jesus. Give me humility. If you need prayer, just come on up right now. We'll start praying with you. We're going to worship just a tad bit more before we leave. But you can pray where you're at or come forward with the prayer worker. But don't leave out here the same way you came. Examine your heart, friends. Jesus, love is true. Yes, God. Your love is free, God. You give it to us freely. That's why we can love God now, because he first loved us. We can do this right. After so many wrongs, we can do it right. Because he forgives. He changes. A few moments right now will change your life. I know I take these messages serious. Trust me, I'm not picking on anybody. I don't want to stumble and fall. I don't want to be a hypocrite. I want to live holy. I want to live pure. I want to raise up my daughters, my sons to be holy. I want to see God change this nation. I want to see him change our entertainment, change our movies and TV, change our politicians. Do it, Lord. Start in me, God. Start in me, God. Make us holy. Make us pure. Forgive us of our sins. Teach us your ways, O God. Teach us the ways of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Teach us the ways of Sarah, Rachel, and Hannah, O God, of Esther, Lord, of Mary. Teach us the ways of our leaders. Show us the truth, God.